You know, I wouldn't have thought that anything would have surprised Jesus. You know, after all, he knew what he was getting himself into when he left heaven and came to earth. All of the sin and all of the depravity and all of the awfulness, I mean, that's the whole reason that he came. And on the other hand, all the beauty and splendor and wonder of the earth, well, Scripture tells us he was there in the beginning. In fact, he was speaking that with the Father into creation. So it would seem that whether being bad or good, nothing really would have surprised Jesus with what he saw when he was here on earth. Yet, did you notice in verse 9 of our reading, take a look at this with me again. In verse 9 of our reading, it says, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled. He marveled. This, the word in Greek is really stronger than that. It really means that he was totally astonished. Something really surprised Jesus. What was it? What made Jesus marvel? Keep reading and it says it's the faith of one man, the faith of the Roman centurion. Jesus came all the way from heaven to earth and he witnessed many things, but this is one of the only things that made him marvel. The other time this word is used where it says Jesus marveled, he's in Nazareth, and it says he marvels at their lack of faith. But here he marvels at one man's faith. That actually should make us marvel. Why? Because it says in Hebrews that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of faith. Jesus founded faith and he perfected faith. Yet when he saw this man's faith, he marveled. We should probably inquire about this man's faith if it impressed Jesus. Can you imagine if the Queen of England came over to your house or your apartment and she walked in the front door and she marveled at how awesome your house was? <laughs> what kind of house would you have to have for the Queen of England who lives in Buckingham Palace to be impressed with your house? Does anyone have a house like that? I would love to see that house. In the same way, I would love to see this man's faith that Jesus marveled about. I wish we could get to know him more. We have these 10 brief verses where we get to know the Roman centurion, but I can find at least two things about his faith that probably is the reason that Jesus marveled. This man knew two things. He believed two principles about faith. He lived by them. When he saw Jesus, he recognized him for who he really was. The first thing that I see in this story that the man saw in his eyes of faith was that you cannot earn what God freely gives. You cannot earn what God freely gives. Ty read the story for us just a moment ago. There's a centurion. He works for the Roman Empire. He's part of the whole Roman Empire structure there. He's living in Capernaum. One of his servants has grown ill, and he must have heard that there was a person in town who had healing power named Jesus. So he sends some of the religious leaders to go find Jesus and to beckon Jesus over to his home. Let's pick up the story in verse 4, Scott. <clears throat> Here's what it says. When they, those are the religious leaders now, the Jewish elders is what the text calls it. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Keep going. For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. He's worthy, Jesus. This is a model citizen. This man has wealth, he has power, and look what he's done with it. He's become patriotic, he loves our nation, 
and philanthropic. He paid for our synagogue. This man, because of his worthiness, really, this is what they're thinking, Jesus, he has earned your blessing. He deserves you to come over and heal his servant. This is what they're thinking when they set this up for Jesus. Let's just imagine if that's, if that's really the way the man was thinking too. When Jesus arrived at his house, it'd be like, oh, hey, Jesus, I'm glad you heard about me. I'm the worthy one. Yeah, thanks for coming over. I'm the one who, I've done so much good. You heard about the patriotism and the philanthropy? Good, thank you. My servant's over here. He needs to be healed. Thanks for coming on time. I'm worthy, Jesus. See, this is really how they've set it up. But is that the way the man interacted with Jesus? Now, let's pick up the story again where we left off. Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends this time, not the religious leaders, but he sent friends to say to Jesus, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. Keep going, Scott. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. We're going to stop right there for a moment. You see, the man didn't act like he had earned what God would freely give him. We know from the end of the story, Jesus does heal the servant. That's kind of like the the secondary story of what's really going on here. He does get blessed by God, but it's not because he says, I'm so worthy, I've earned this. He says, I'm not worthy for you to even come under my roof. See, this is the way the religious leaders were thinking at the time, but it's not the way of the gospel. I'm actually surprised how many people who believe in Jesus today still think like the religious leaders thought. Uh, I'm worthy of God's blessing. I've earned, I've done so much good in the world. Maybe you've never bought someone's synagogue for them, but maybe you think, gee, I hope God's paying attention to all of the good things that I've done. Maybe I've earned a little bit of blessing so that when someone in my household is sick, maybe God will kind of owe me one a little bit. People still think that way a little bit, don't we? On the other hand, sometimes we think if I do bad things, well, maybe God owes me a curse, not a blessing. And we think that what we put out into the universe, then we're going to get back. What we put out into the universe, if it's good, well, we'll get something good back. If we put something bad out into the universe, well, we'll get our punishment for that as well. This is not the gospel. You know what this is called? Karma. Yes, this is called (laughs) karma. Thank you. And that's what the religious leaders were operating under, to be perfectly honest. He's worthy of you doing this for him, Jesus. That's karma, and a lot of people still think that way. But here's the thing about the gospel. The gospel comes in, the gospel recognizes that almost everything we put out into the universe, it's stained by sin. It says we are all sinful, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. It says no one is righteous, no, not one. And furthermore, it says the wages of sin is death. That means we're in a lot of trouble. If, if what we put out into the universe is that's what we're going to get back, that means we're all due the punishment of death. What the gospel comes into, this cycle of karma, which most world religions teach, by the way, the gospel comes in and it interrupts that cycle. It breaks it. See this cross back here? 
When Jesus died on the cross, he interrupted the cycle of karma. He said all of the evil that's been put out into the world because of sin is all due on all these people, the punishment of death. So I will stop the cycle. I will take this death upon myself so that we don't get back from the universe what we put out into it. I see heads nodding. Someone should say hallelujah right then. <laughs> because if, we, if karma was our ultimate judge, we'd all be in a lot of trouble. But praise God, he stops. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's what it says, Psalm 103. Instead, what we get is what Jesus deserved. Because of his perfect righteousness, his full obedience to the law, he deserved eternal blessing and reward. That's what we get. So next time you hear somebody say, oh yeah, that's karma, I hope that person gets what they deserve, you can just say, that is not the gospel, my friend. That's not what I believe. People think this way. I saw something on Facebook a couple weeks ago. Someone from church, something bad had happened to their family, and someone else had typed on there, karma, you know, like hoping the, bad, the guy that did the bad thing was going to get judged by that. So I actually pulled the people aside after church, and I said, here's how you can reply to your friend on Facebook. We don't follow the principle of karma. It's the gospel. This man, the Roman centurion, he saw that. He knew that. Remember, he, this is a faith that made Jesus marvel. He says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. That's just the first thing we see. He also saw something else. This one requires a little bit more explanation. He saw that you can't earn what God freely gives, but he also saw something about Jesus. He saw that Jesus operates with authority. He operates with authority. He operates under authority, but he also operates with authority. Let's look at verse 7. We'll pick up halfway through this verse. Uh, he's still explaining, therefore, I did not come to, uh, presume to come to you. But, he says, say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. See, the Roman centurion, he had somebody that he reported to. He says he's set under authority. There was somebody higher up in the Roman structures from him. But then he starts explaining how there's people under his authority. I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, he's explaining that he, he sees Jesus and he thinks, yeah, I get this guy. I too operate under authority and with authority. Somehow the Roman centurion, when he saw it, it's like he could see into the spiritual realm and he could see that Jesus was operating under and with authority. I want to show you two scriptures of Jesus' own words that he was saying about himself. In Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. See, Jesus, we know this, we see him throughout the Gospels when he interacts with the spiritual realm. When he meets demons, he commands them, they have to obey him. They run it. It doesn't go well for the demons, usually, when they interact with Jesus. Even the wind and the waves, he's out on the boat. The wind and the waves are coming. He speaks a word. They obey his voice. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Just like the Roman centurion, he says to some, go, and they go. To others, come, and they come. He operates with total authority. But also, look what it says in John 8, verse 28. Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. 
See, he operates with authority. He tells anything under his authority when to go and when to come. On the other hand, he operates under the authority of the Father. Jesus, within the Godhead, within the Trinity, he submits to the authority of the Father. His whole ministry began with him getting baptized as an act of submission to the Father. That's when the Father says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. He's like, ah, look, my Son is submitting to my will. And it goes all the way to that amazing prayer in the garden. You know it. When he says, Father, if this cup could be taken from me, yet not my will, but yours. This is a person who has submitted totally to the will of his heavenly Father and somebody who operates with authority over heaven and earth. The Roman centurion saw Jesus and he thought, I get you. I too am a man who operates with authority. A couple of years ago, my daughter was only four years old. She's six now. And uh, when she was four, she was kind of like the Roman centurion one day. She kind of got this authority principle. She's, um, she's what people politely call a strong-willed child. <laughs> And um, she tries to assert her authority sometimes, especially when she was younger. And one day she was doing that. I don't remember the circumstance, but she was just trying to like really show me who's boss. And um, I decided I need to confront her. And so I put on my dad face, you know, the serious dad face. And I got my serious dad voice. And I said, young lady, who's the authority in this house? And she looked at me with those big brown eyes. I remember she blinked once and she said, Pastor Chuck? True story. There was another time, I told this story earlier, where she was convincing me that mommy's the judge of the house. So she has mommy as the judge of the house and Pastor Chuck is the authority. I'm like, hello. I'm not doing something right. She totally messed me up. I had to start laughing. I totally messed up my whole dad thing I had going on. Pastor Chuck, and I know exactly why she said that. It's because we had explained to the children that we don't own our home. It's a parsonage. The church owns our house. We'd also explained to the children at another time that Pastor Chuck is in charge of the church. So Eva, my daughter, was only going with the information she had. Who's the authority in this house? It's got to be Pastor Chuck, you know? She reminds me of the Roman centurion because the Roman centurion saw Jesus as one who's under authority but also with authority. My daughter was actually right. Pastor Chuck, he is Nancy's and my spiritual authority. He's my boss, but he's our pastor, and if we need spiritual help, we go to him. I consider myself submitted under the authority of Pastor Chuck. I also, I hope my daughter will figure this out one day, have authority over my household. If you all could tell her that, it'd be great. I'll tell her. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) She's obviously not hearing it from me. So this man understood this about Jesus. He operated under authority and with authority. And here's the thing. Jesus operated that way, and so can we. And there's a couple of implications here. I'm just going to point out a couple of those implications for you just in the next two minutes. But there's way more to be understood about this concept. And so I would highly recommend this book. It fully unpacks this authority principle. It's called The Bold Christian. It's written by Chuck. And we have some copies available here. If you haven't yet read it, it's very good, very helpful. It's been helpful for me in my own household as well. 
but I'm just going to point out two implications for us on this authority principle. Jesus operated under and with authority, and so can we. And here's one implication. Some of you, you know, I look around and I realize there's some people here, there's a couple of us, you have employees. Others of you, you, your parents in a household, or maybe your parents have grown up. Almost all of us can point to at least one person over whom we have authority. You know, almost everyone here is at, at one point in your, in your week, at least, you have authority over somebody else. So we kind of get that. But have you fully submitted to the authority of your heavenly father? Let me tell you, if Jesus, the king of kings, had to submit under the authority of his heavenly father, so do you, and so do I. That's implication number one. Here's implication number two. It's kind of the other side of the coin. Maybe you have fully submitted to your heavenly father. You totally understand that part of the principle. But then when you come home, or when you go to your workplace, when you cross the threshold of your front door, and you walk into your home, suddenly you totally yield your spiritual authority. You know you're submitted to your heavenly father's authority, but you totally yield. And there's lots of other examples. I would fully encourage you to read this book to understand this authority principle. I was thinking about these two truths that the man understood, these two aspects of faith that the Roman centurion had that made Jesus marvel. He saw, he knew that you can't earn what God freely gives. And he saw that Jesus operates with authority and so can we. And I was thinking about what, what ties those two things together? Why was Jesus so impressed with this man's faith? And I would say that the thing that ties those two things together is freedom. Think about it. If you can't do anything, if you can't earn, if you're not worthy to receive God's blessing, then you can stop trying to impress him. You can stop working so hard to become worthy of his blessing. You know, when you meet Jesus face to face, like this man had the great privilege of doing, one of you is worthy and it's not you. You know, the man didn't say, oh, thank you, Jesus. I'm so worthy. Thanks for seeing me. No, he, he knew that Jesus was worthy. So there's freedom in that for us. We can stop trying to make Jesus impressed with us and we can start becoming impressed with him. There's freedom in that. We don't have to work so hard to impress him. There's also freedom in the second thing that the man understood, that Jesus operates with authority and so can we. You know, just knowing that we are submitting to the will of our heavenly father there's freedom in that because it means we're not actually ultimately the ones in charge. We're not in control. That's really scary to think about at first, but there's so much freedom when you realize he is seated upon the throne. And also when we operate with authority, we can free ourselves from trying to operate with power, with dominance. I'm going to try to overpower my subordinates and show them who's boss. No, we work with authority, and authority works in the best interest of the people who are under us. There's freedom in that. You can stop trying to impress God because there's nothing you can do to earn his blessing. You can stop trying to think you're in control of all your circumstances. You're not. And you can stop trying to overpower the people in your life. You can operate with authority. All of those things point to freedom. There's nothing we can do to earn what God freely gives. And Jesus operated with authority, and so can we. Amen.